I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 3 as we continue our study in the book of Romans and talking this morning about the miracle of justification. Um, You know, I had not been a Christian very long when I ran across that that term, justification, and and, uh, asked somebody about it, and they they said something that was helpful at the time and I think is is a good starting place. They said, think of being justified as it's just as if I'd never sinned. And that's a good starting place. That's, that's not far enough. But um, the idea is that, that God declares we who are unjust before him to be just before God uh, because of Christ's work and what he accomplished for us on the cross. Um, If you're a believer, a follower of Jesus, uh, Jesus' record is now your record. Christ treats us, God treats us as righteous because he treated Christ as unrighteous for your sake. Our sins are taken off of us and laid on Christ at the cross. That's justification. So in the first part of Romans 3, uh, what we looked at last week, uh, Paul had made this powerful case for the nature of depravity, that we are all depraved. Uh, We're all sinful before him. And in fact, that's best summarized in verse 10. If you want to look in your Bibles at, at verse 10, what we looked at last week, as it is written, there is no one righteous not even one. And so what that means is that if, if you know someone who is asking questions maybe to you about your faith, uh, about Christianity, you can know that, that there's nothing in us that seeks after the true God, God the Father, for himself on our own. We don't do that on our own. And so if someone's asking questions, pray for them, answer the questions. Know that God is at work in their lives. Uh, we looked last week at John 6, that says, no one can come to me, Jesus is speaking, unless the Father who sent me draws them. And Jesus says, I will raise them up on the last day. And so your friends or family would not even be interested in God unless God were drawing them to him. So Paul's conclusion of really chapters one through three, verse 20, what we've looked at up to this point is summarized in the verse 10 that we just said. But in verse 18, look at verse 18, he's quoting Psalm 36. A lot of quotations there at that first part, what we looked at last week. But he says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Uh, Jeremiah says it like this. Jeremiah says, the heart is, is wicked, is desperately wicked, and who can know it? The, the heart is, is hopelessly dark, and, and, and God knows it, God discerns it, but he's not just talking about evil men there. He's talking about good people. He's talking about us. We might think we, we have good hearts. We talk about that. It's a, an expression we use. He has a good heart. She has a good heart. But, but God knows the truth about all hearts. 
And from a human point of view, the question is, how can we then ever be made righteous before God if we're totally depraved? And from God's point of view, he demands the punishment of our sin. And yet it's because of his divine love that he wants to reach out to guilty humanity. And and keep in mind that that as we're reading through this section of Romans that's, that's pretty heavy theologically, that this was from Martin Luther, you've got the quote on your outline, the the chief point in the book of Romans, in fact, he says in the whole Bible, the verses that we're looking at today. So follow along in your Bible as we read uh, Romans chapter three, starting at verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because the law, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through the same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. This is God's word. So in terms of our being made just before God, uh, these verses give us four truths, powerful truths, uh, about the gospel, about salvation, about the miracle of justification. And the first one, number one on your outline, is that righteousness is revealed apart from the law. So Paul says this is in verse 21. Uh, I'll read it again. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. So the law and the prophets are pointing to the righteousness of God, the radical righteousness of God. Mankind is, is falling short of the law and of what God's people knew they had to do because of the law. The law was there. They knew they had to live up to it, and they weren't living up to it. 
So in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul writes this. He says, Christ Jesus has become for us wisdom from God. That is, our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. So it's, we find our hope in Christ. That's what he's saying. Jesus is the radical righteousness of God for us. We can't do it on our own. And so Paul has already made clear how corrupt we are in a radical way, and so there's, there's no hope for us to do this on our own. Um, but the existence of righteousness, again, apart from the law. We, we know we fall short because we can't obey all that the law gives us to obey. And so the only way, our only hope, is by the grace of God. And so, you know, you might look at your life and you might compare yourself to others and you might say, well, you know, maybe I'm at least as good as they are. Uh, I can give maybe 50% of my righteousness. I'll I'll give everything I have to God, all my righteousness. But it's not going to be enough. You might have 10% righteousness. You might have 99% righteousness, which nobody does. But no matter what we have, what we present to God will never be enough. And so the second powerful truth that leads us to is that the righteousness of God comes only by faith. And we're going to talk about faith because that's really the, the main subject, if you will, of chapter 4. But look at verse 22. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew or Gentile. We don't measure righteousness uh, by the same standard. God demands perfection. We measure it when we compare ourselves to others, but not God. God demands perfection. We think of competition. We want to be better than the next guy. Uh, And Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, though, he says, be holy as I am holy. How can we attain to that holiness? Uh, That's God's standard. In in other words, instead of asking what, what God requires, we judge our goodness on the relative goodness of other people. We look around and we say, you know, I'm just as good as that person or that person. Uh, Paul says getting into heaven is is not like a high jump contest. You know what the world record is in the high jump? It's eight feet. Think about that. Jumping over eight feet, it seems like you'd have to fly to do that. We can't do that. That's pretty impressive. But maybe you've seen it in the Olympics or seen it on, on television. But that's unbelievable. Well, if that, were this, if that was the best we could attain, what God says is I demand 100 feet or 10,000 feet. It doesn't matter what God demands. It's way beyond what we can offer. It's beyond what the best of us can do. It's never enough for God. Uh, and what Paul does here is he reduces the best that anyone could offer basically down to zero. He says there's no distinction. Jew or Gentile, no matter who it is, no matter what you've done. And the key to having the righteousness of God is faith. And, and, and Paul's a little bit more specific in Philippians. He says this in Philippians chapter 3. It is the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. So that's how we get the righteousness of God. So what does it mean to us? It means everything to us. Um, so imagine that high jump contest and you're watching it from 30,000 feet in an airplane and and, and you'll have a good idea of God's perspective on our righteousness. It falls short every time. God's K-1 
Character is the moral standard. And that bar is set light years beyond what we could ever attain on our own. And so how do we have that? How do we attain that? It's only through Jesus. And it's only by faith in him. That's where the good news of salvation is. Everyone needs to be saved. There's no difference between Jew or Gentile. He's saying you can keep the law, you can do everything you want, or, or you cannot keep the law. You can be circumcised like the Gentiles are, or you can be not circumcised. It doesn't matter. What matters is the object of our faith. It's having our faith in Jesus. And we're gonna be talking about that in, in chapter four. That's, like I said, that's, we'll, we'll spend some time on that. And this leads us, though, to the third powerful truth of the gospel and salvation, and that is that righteousness comes by faith in Christ's work. That's the only way we can attain the righteousness. Verse 24, and all who are justified freely, and and, um, you know what, what, let's look at verse 23, too. I don't want to forget verse 23. It's a classic verse. We know that. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And what you would expect to be right after that is you'd expect God to say, and boy, is God mad. And you are going to pay. There are going to be arrows coming your way because you have fallen short of the glory of God. But that's not what we read next. Look at what we read next. We can can make up for our mistakes, maybe, but we can't make up for our sin. Uh, and, And we know there's a debt we owe. And so that leads to Christ's work. Verse 24, and all who are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So after verse 23, I know there's some sacrifice that I should be making. There's something that I've got to do. And what what Paul says is, here's the great news. All have sinned and all are made right with God. And we're made right with God freely. We can't comprehend this. We say, "But, but God, what do I owe you? And God says, you know what? You owe me so much that you can't pay it. That's how much you owe me. And so I had somebody else pay it for you. That's what God says to us. And so because of Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross, we are declared righteous by God's grace. And if you add baptism to it, if you add church membership to it, if you add anything to it, then you destroy the grace of God. It is by grace alone, by faith alone that we know Jesus. It's completely and wholly God who saves us. There's nothing that you can contribute. That's all you can bring is nothing. And the only way to get it is to receive it, like you would receive a gift. And when somebody gives you a gift, think about it. Is the, what's your first response? Our first response generally is to say, wow, thank you. Not, how much do I owe you? That's a slap in the face to somebody who's given you a gift. And when we think we can pay something to God for this gift by doing this or that thing, by becoming a member or getting baptized or whatever it is, God says no. <clears throat> for by, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It is not by works so that we can't boast. What would we be doing if we could add to it? We'd say, wow, look at what I did. 
But none of us can do that. We cannot boast about it. And we read the Bible and we read specially about Romans and you know, there are some terms that we need to define. The first one we've already started defining is justification. You know, if somebody is before a judge, it is that judge who determines their future. Either they are found justified, they're found innocent, just in what they did and and, and not guilty, or they're found guilty. If they're not guilty, they won't receive any punishment. But we know that before God, we all stand guilty. Um, And if if we're guilty, then somebody in a court knows that if they're found guilty, they're going to face fines. They're going to be they're going to have to go to jail. In human courts, we have to prove our innocence in order to be declared innocent. That's why we have lawyers or advocates. Uh, Think of Jesus as our advocate. That's who he is. And so this is on your outline. Justification is an act of a righteous judge, it's God, by which he declares that you and I, a sinner, is righteous because of that sinner coming into a righteous relationship with God. How? Through the righteousness of Christ. So John Calvin calls justification uh, the main hinge on which salvation turns. Um, F.F. Bruce, uh, professor, theologian, said those who have been justified are now being sanctified and those who have no experience of present sanctification have no reason to suppose they've been justified. So how do we know someone is justified? Ultimately, we can't know, but we can look at their fruit. That's what Jesus said. Look, you'll know them by their fruit. Look at their lives. Do their lives reflect something of what it means to be a justified person? God sees hearts. Um, Paul and the Romans understood what was going on here because uh, of living under the heavy-handed rule of Rome. And at one point, uh, Paul, uh, if somebody was found guilty, they were called before a judgment seat. It was called a bima. Uh, we, when we were on our trip in the steps of the Apostle Paul in Corinth, we visited the bima. There was a, it's an outdoor setting of a, uh, probably a marble kind of stage almost, and up there sat a judge, and people would bring their court cases to the the judge, and he would would judge on that. He would call them innocent or guilty. Paul, you can read about it in in Acts 18, the case that was brought against him wasn't even heard because it didn't have any merit, according to the judge. You can read about it. But think of all of us before that judgment seat, and we are all found guilty. As Paul laid out for us, we have no righteousness before God on our own. So on the outline, how could we ever be declared to be justified? God's righteousness is transferred from Jesus' account to ours. That's the only way we can be righteous before God. You know, on June 13th of 2000, there was a young deaf couple uh, in Virginia that went before a Judge McDonough. And they had been uh, delinquent in paying their rent. Uh, They were deaf, and so after they got married, they lost disability benefits for whatever reason, and they were behind uh, several hundred dollars on their rent. 
And there was no contest. Uh, they, they didn't argue it. The judge said, you're, you're guilty, you need to pay it. And they said, judge, we have no money, we cannot pay it. And the attorney said, well, we're gonna have to figure something out. And so they were found guilty in this court. Uh, judge McDonough stood up and he said, hey, just everyone wait right here. He left, came back a couple minutes later, walked up to the attorney of uh, the plaintiff and said, here is $300. And uh, they're now found innocent because they've paid their debt. And who paid their debt? The judge paid their debt. And that's a small picture of what Jesus has done for us, what God has done for us. God declares us to be guilty. But then he himself pays the penalty through Jesus for us, for you. That's unbelievable. We think about these funds being transferred from the just judge to these guilty renters uh, was exactly what what made the, the, the case be dismissed. And why? Because the law had been satisfied. And just because of that, the renters, the defendants, they were found just, they were found righteous, they were found not guilty and innocent in the eyes of the court. And it's in the same way that there's been a transfer of righteousness from one account to the other with God and us. There's a shortfall. We're always gonna fall short. We will never have enough to pay God what he is owed, the righteous the righteousness, the righteous life that he's owed. And so we might stand justified before the court of heaven only because our attorney, our advocate, Jesus, is, stands in our place. And he says, Lord, I've paid for them. They're innocent. And so when God looks at us, he sees our advocate first. He sees Jesus first. And it's, he, sees, he sees the righteousness of Christ And so in that sense, it's just as if I had never sinned. That's how I'm justified. And how did this happen? Verse 24, by his grace it happened. It's a free gift given, not because we are good, but because God is good. How did we receive this transfer of righteousness? Again, verse 24, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Verse 25, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. And the term sacrifice of atonement, those three words are one English word that sometimes is translated in your Bibles as propitiation. There's another term that we need to define. Um, uh, Propitiation means the turning away of wrath. It means the satisfying of anger. It means the Lord has paid our debt to justice, and that is himself. So on your outline again, propitiation means the satisfying of the just demands of God and his holy law so that God can freely forgive those who come to Christ by grace through faith. By grace through faith. That's how we receive the righteousness of God. And so if we break that down further, there are three parts to propitiation that we need to understand. And you know what? All good theology leads to worship. And so what's our response to all of this, to justification? What's our response to propitiation, these theological terms? It's to praise God. 
And so in describing these, I just want us to praise God more for who he is. And so it's first of all about God's anger against injustice and sin and evil. That's what propitiation is. That's part one. God just can't let things go. He can't just turn a blind eye, so to speak. Justice has to be done. And God is, God's not just up there being emotionally cranky and saying, well, you know what, I just don't like you people down there. No, that's not who God is. So a lot of people don't like the idea of an angry God. And some people want to just focus on God's love. I want to serve a God of love. Well, what we need to understand is that it's the, and this is on your outline, it's the love and the goodness of God that makes him angry at injustice. I'll give you an example that I think, that in fact I know uh, some of you can identify with. Um, I've had a friend who was, uh, he over time became so consumed with alcohol that um, he was ruining his life. And I could see it, and everyone could see it. And we, we loved this guy. We wanted to take him by the shoulders and shake him and say, don't you see what you're doing to yourself? Don't you see that you're becoming less and less of the person that we love and somebody else that nobody knows? Don't you see that how much you are hurting the people around you who love you so deeply? And, and they didn't listen. And, and it was just, I, we, we had love for this person, not just me, but many others, and anger at the same time because we saw what was happening. And if we are flawed people and we feel anger and love at the same time over someone's condition, how much more does a perfectly just God who created you and created me feel when we are going and, and with sin, we, we don't come to Jesus, we don't receive the gift that he's given us. Imagine somebody giving you a gift that you know is a phenomenal gift and you look at them and you just turn and walk away. Think how you would feel if you were giving that gift. Well, again, multiply that to infinity. That's how God feels when people refuse this offer of salvation. It's a free gift. And so the second aspect of propitiation is, and it's on your outline, is that it's about God's justice being satisfied. When someone wrongs you, <clears throat> we all get wronged, there are two responses that you can have when somebody wrongs you. And both of them involve suffering. So if somebody robs you, they rob you of money, they rob you of happiness, they rob you of your reputation, they somehow rob you, or whatever it is, you can find a way to hurt them back. Payback time. We can get cre pretty, pretty creative about way we can, ways we can pay people back. You can even, um, you can strive to get even with them. Maybe a little bit more because they started it anyway. And they suffer. You make them suffer. 
You make them pay. But in the process, you become a harder person. You become more cruel. Evil wins. The next time there's a situation like that, it's a little bit easier for you to focus on the payback, revenge, so that they suffer like you've suffered. Or you can forgive them. But what that means is that you suffer. You bear the loss of the money. You bear the loss of your reputation. Or whatever else it is they've taken from you. But that's the only way for us to say to stay soft-hearted. That's the only way for evil not to win. And so the wrong that's been done can't just be willed away. Justice is owed something. And it can only be paid by suffering. Either your suffering or their suffering. So we can get that on a human level. How much less can God, an absolutely loving and just God, just let sins go that are destroying the human race? He can't. And so on the cross, God is paying the debt to his own justice. God says, you owe me a price you can never pay me. And so we say, well, what do we do? And God says, I'm going to pay it for you. With my son, God the Father, sending God the Son to the cross to die for your sins. He's suffering in our place. That's justice. You know, we think, you know, God, why am I suffering so much? Aren't you there? Aren't you listening? And it was Dorothy Sayers, the the British mystery writer, who said, you know what? At least when we're suffering, God took his own medicine. He suffered in your place on the cross through his son Jesus. And that leads us to the third aspect of propitiation, that's about the blood of Jesus. What we sang about this morning. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. In verse 25, again, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. The word blood tells us what the sacrifice was. It was his life. It was God himself coming down as as Jesus, God the Son, fully God and fully man and demanding not our blood, which he could have demanded, but his own. He suffered for you. And the penalty of our sin became our overwhelming debt in this court of heaven. In this court, we stand before a judge whose wrath against sin must be satisfied. We look back at Romans chapter 1, verse 18. God's holy nature burns, it says, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. It demands justice. And the penalty for sin is death, physical death on earth. But way worse than that, separation from God for all eternity. 
And so what Paul says here is that Jesus' death on the cross is what satisfied the wrath of God. Paul says it in verse 25. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Verse 26, he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. So as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. And so the wrath of God called for the just penalty of sin to be paid. And his wrath was satisfied in the death of Jesus. And so God is just because, he, because sin does not go unpunished. Sin has to be punished. And so he's just. And he is the one who justifies because the death of his son makes the way for him to declare believers righteous without contradicting his own nature. But his own, his, he has to pay the penalty for us. We're the guilty ones that stand before the judge and he says, you're guilty. And Jesus stands up in our place and he says, Lord, I paid the penalty. I paid the price so they can go free. So they can have an abundant and eternal life. An abundant life here, an eternal life forever in heaven. What if that couple in Judge McDonough's courtroom had refused to accept the money? What causes someone to do that? Pride? Selfishness? Trying to get back at someone? What if, there, if, if all that had prevented their willingness to receive this gift? A gift that does no good until it's received. But we know that there's this, there's this wonderful invitation that to, to all who received him, he gave the right to become the children of God. And that's grace. What, what this compassionate judge offered, what God offers to us is, is unmerited favor. We don't deserve it. It's grace. Mercy that's not earned, it's not deserved, it cannot be reciprocated, it can only be received. And so we come to God with open hands. And that leads to number four, and that is that faith is important to God and should not be neglected. And so Paul asks these questions of those who might suggest that they somehow deserve salvation. So he's back to the same issue. And he says this, question one, verse 27, where then is boasting? It's excluded because of what law? The law that requires works. No, a person of the law that requires faith. Verse 28, for we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So there's no boasting. We don't boast about it because true faith is all about Jesus. The grace of God cancels all of our right to boast. We can't boast. And so you have this on your outline. Faith requires a humble admission that we are helpless to redeem ourselves. God deserves the credit for our salvation. It's not about our faith. It's about the object of our faith. It's not someone who has great faith. You look at the story of Abraham that we're going to be looking at in chapter 4. 
and you think, wow, Abraham was this great man of faith. No, the hero of the story is not Abraham. The hero of the story is God. Second question, verses 29 and 30. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of the Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through the same faith. Paul is simply saying here that some trust in his grace and demonstrate their belief through the rite of circumcision and some trust in his grace apart from that Hebrew ritual. The common denominator for the Jew and the Gentile is faith. We don't need a lot of faith. A tiny, tiny bit of faith in an object that's solid will work. And then finally, question three in verse 31. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Paul is saying that the faith principle, the law of faith, if you will, is God's means of confronting and diagnosing our problem so that we will turn to him and exercise faith, which is also a gift from God. And so salvation that we're declared righteous before our creator is a gift to be received. It's not a wage that we earn. There's no way. So you know what it means to be a Christian. I'll tell you what it does not mean to be a Christian. What it does not mean to be a Christian is to say, I promise to try really hard. I promise I'll live like Jesus. I'll try to come to church every Sunday. I'll try to obey the Ten Commandments. No! That is not what it means to be a Christian. What it means to become a Christian is to say, only you, Lord Jesus, can stand in my place and represent me as my advocate, as my attorney before a just and righteous judge. Only then will God look at you and see Jesus standing in your place. And you know what Jesus will say? Jesus will say, I will stand in your place. Even though it costs me everything, I will stand in your place. And God doesn't just forgive our debt. He comes into our lives and all that he is and all that he has is ours. We are seated with Christ in heavenly places. <clears throat> and God doesn't, he, he, we look at this and it, and, it, and it changes us because of what God has done for us. And how does it change us? Because we understand that he wasn't forced to go to the cross. That Jesus went willingly to the cross for you on your behalf to shed his blood for you because he loves you. You know, in Billy Graham's biography, uh, he tells the story of going and preaching for four nights in a row at Cambridge University. And the Times of London got a hold of this story and they said, you know, Billy Graham is just, it's a, he, he preaches a primitive religion about hell and atonement and blood and... Um, he said, we're religious here, but we've gotten way beyond that. And so, you know, Billy Graham, thinking of the Apostle Paul in Athens, tried to relate to them by 
talking about the people they were studying, the philosophers they were studying and quoting them. And by Billy Graham's own admission, he fell flat on his face those first three nights. Never got any better. And so he prayed and he said, Lord, what do you need to do for this last night? And he said, I just want you to talk about the blood. So he started in Genesis, all these sacrifices that were made. And he went through all these sacrifices and, and, and explained them and, and how they pointed to Jesus. Some of the professors who were there, even the chaplain who was there, were shaking their heads and looking at each other and apparently whispering to each other, this is going to fall flat. Nobody will be, respond to this. And um, at the time, there were 8,000 students at Cambridge. 400 came forward to receive Christ that night. Uh, there was a great response from those who were there in the chapel. They never thought that would happen. They never thought that it would impact even one person. But man, it did. One guy came out and he said, uh, for the first time in my life, I understood that Jesus died for me and gave his life to Christ. And so there is nothing but the blood. That's what we sang about today. It's all about Jesus' sacrifice for you on the cross. So there are so many questions that we should be asking ourselves. You know, the, the, the world has all these questions. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? Who is God? Maybe we ask, how can I please him? But the most important questions are, are you in Christ? Do you know him? Are you justified by faith in what he did for you on the cross. You ask, how can I become right with God? How can I be justified in his sight? That's a great question. Am I justified? Do I know Jesus personally? And then, <clears throat> like F.F. F. Bruce said, are you in the process, once you've been justified, of, of becoming like Jesus and other Theological term, sanctification. Are you in the process of becoming like Jesus? Do you want to become like him? Maybe we could even take it one step further and say, he's forgiven you so much. Is there someone in your life that you're trying to make suffer when you should be suffering and carrying that suffering? That you can be kind and tender-hearted towards because God has been kind and tender-hearted towards you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you have demonstrated through the redemption and sacrifice of Jesus on the cross that you can be both just and the justifier of those who believe. I pray that as we meditate on this, that it would change our lives, that it would lead us to worship you more because you are at the same time infinitely holy and infinitely loving because of the cross. Pray that you would fill us with a passion to be like Jesus, as honest, as sacrificing, as loving as he is. And at the same time when we fail, that our sins know that our sins are covered by the blood of Christ. 
Father, we want to be the unique community that you've made us to be. Help us to keep the cross of Jesus right in the middle of our hearts and lives and friendships. May the power of the cross liberate us from guilt and sin. And we pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Uh, Now to him who is able to strengthen you in the faith, to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ, the anointed one. Amen. God bless you. Please greet, introduce yourself to the folks around you and thank them for being here.